Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ohio Virtual Academy Music Appreciation Podcast. My name is Daphne Check, and I am one of four teachers that teach music. Uh, there's definitely more teachers at OHVA than just us four. But anyway, um, I am one of the four music appreciation teachers. I'm doing this podcast with my illustrious colleague, Jeremy England. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I don't know what illustrious means, if I'm being honest. Super fabulous. (laughs) Well, thank you. I am illustrious, (laughs) and you are as well. Well, we do what we can. That's right. We're coming to you today with episode 45, and um, we decided that today is a good time to talk about another composer and another, or not composer, well, I guess composer. I guess that's not untrue, Um, but a musician that we've feel like should get a little bit of a highlight. And today we're coming to you with Thelonious Monk. Now, Jeremy, you kind of came up with talking about this person. Um, was there any reason that you picked him for this? Or you just were no, like, I want to talk about this guy. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, <laughs> I've been like, listening to a lot of, well, not a lot. I've been putting some jazz back into my rotation and uh, like you said, it was time for a composer. And he jazz is weird because composers and performers sometimes intermix, especially band leaders. So Thelonious Monk, as we learn later, will be a band leader. And um, I don't know. I, he's an interesting dude. He's got a very unique style. Uh, he is not a traditionally trained type of musician, but he is, but he doesn't play traditionally. I don't know. He just is a... He's a cool dude, you know? So that's yeah. why. Especially um, when we were creating the show notes here, um, you know, I know him by name as a music teacher, obviously, uh, particularly as somebody who's taught jazz before. But when you watch him play, and I was looking at some of the YouTube links in the show notes, we're going to talk about it, but his technique is very different. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. a piano player saying that. <laughs> Yeah, he he's famous, I guess, for saying the piano ain't got no wrong notes, and uh, I think part of that is just his playing style. But um, he wasn't as appreciated as maybe we appreciate him today. And he's probably he, I don't know he might be controversial today, but you can't disregard his contribution to jazz. But uh, Philip Larkin, he's a poet and jazz critic, which is kind of cool, uh, called him, quote, an elephant on the keyboard. So that kind of <laughs> gives you an idea of uh, his playing technique, which probably goes into the piano ain't got no wrong notes because if you just hit all the keys, you know, you either have to work on your technique or you just have to, you know, I don't know, <laughs> play jazz. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause I, when I saw the term or the phrase elephant on the keyboard, I don't think I really understood it until I watched it and watched it closely because I think that's an accurate description. Yeah. And so in the show notes, we'll put a bunch of different videos of him. Uh, I tried to find as many live performances as I could. And yeah, you have to watch his fingers and I love watching piano players play especially like in college that was some of my favorite recitals to go to were piano players because the speed in which their fingers moved uh and so delicately just fascinated me and then you watch Thelonious Monk and great music not so refined of a technique (laughs) (laughs) very very not (laughs) it's it's again it's one of these things where almost the podcast almost does us a disservice in the fact that we it would this would be where we'd show it to you 
right yeah. now, you know, like show it to you. So definitely um, go and look at some of these show notes. The other thing I thought that was interesting that you have here is he's the second most recorded jazz artist behind Duke Ellington. I had no yeah. idea about that. I would have actually thought this was like that was like Louis Armstrong. Yeah, isn't that pretty fascinating? He's kind of like a a secret juggernaut, and it's interesting because you know I was in high school, I played jazz and stuff. It's he's not as uh, approachable, I think, in a lot of his music because of his unique playing style, but also because uh, you know he helped usher in um, bebop, which mm. is not a uh, beginning beginner friendly style of jazz, I suppose, is you know, I could say it. it is it's a musician's type of music. So, mm-hmm. uh, and jazz is cool too because you just, I mean, you record so much because you can just record everything, and sometimes it's a refined playing space, but other times you could just record a live album and it you're capturing the essence. But I think you're right that it is interesting he's the second most recorded behind Duke Ellington because Louis Armstrong was so much more. Uh, pop culture. He just had, he was, even today, people know who Louis Armstrong is. Yes. And Thelonious Monk is still kind of like a, you know, weird, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's definitely not as well known. And and the fact yeah. that he is much less uh, known compared to, say, Louis Armstrong or even Miles Davis. He's the other one that yeah. came to mind. Because um, Miles Davis has records for days. But yeah. But the Thelonious Monk has him. So I, I just found that tidbit very interesting. He's also one of five uh, jazz musicians to ever be on the cover of Time magazine. That's another little really? tidbit for that him. That I he, didn't know. You know, he was supposed to, I can't remember. Louis Armstrong was one of them. Um, Dave Burbeck, because uh, those are the three I can remember, and Thelonious Monk. And uh, he was... The interesting tidbit about that, not only was he cool he was on the cover of the magazine, but he was supposed to be on, and this is, I'm terrible at history, I guess, because whatever year and month that JFK was killed, uh, that was the month that he was supposed to be on the cover. Uh, but obviously, since the president of the United States was assassinated, they put that cover story, they put JFK, JFK on the front, and he got bumped back one year. Uh, wow. <laughs> so. Well, I mean— I guess that makes sense, but still wowzers. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) So I'll I'll just start here a little bit, and uh, we'll kind of go through his life and some controversy and then some of his music and just kind of try to get an understanding of who this cool cat was. So, (laughs) Did you just say cool cat? Yeah, I try to work in it as much as I can. Is that (laughs) that a Tiger King's reference? Oh, boy. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Oh, don't tell me you've succumbed to that, too. Uh, I may have watched the full season in a couple of days. but It was the the (laughs) pandemic. You know what I'm saying? Like... I mean, I guess that was a thing. I'm holding out because I I don't want to see. She killed her husband, right? Or that's what she supposedly killed her husband or something. (laughs) Allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. Uh, Let me say allegedly like 800 times. But yeah, because that's all I know about it is that I will say it is it it will not make you any smarter or wiser. Right. uh, After have watching. But there's only so much (laughs) thinkers jazz that Thelonious Monk types put out that you can listen to before you need to be stupid for a while. And that's what (laughs) I think Tiger King is. 
That's anyway, so hilarious. oh my gosh, I love that. See, you can only so, take smart so long before you need stupid. Quote Jimmy right. England. <laughs> Sorry, that one oh really got gosh. to me. We should maybe talk about his life. Why don't you go ahead and start while I finish giggling over here? Yeah, so long before Tiger King existed, Thelonious Monk was born in Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mount, North Carolina in 1917. So Right uh, in the time period of the First World War, he was born. Uh, But shortly after that, uh, I think when he was five, I think I did the math. When he was five, he moved to Manhattan into a area, uh, the Spanish uh, San Juan Hill, I think is the name Mm. of the neighborhood he moved into. Uh, And so he moved there. And that's where he really kind of spent his life, this Manhattan area. Um, He showed a ton of music early. He went to a performing arts high school, uh, but he did not finish it. He dropped out at age 17. So if you're a student, listen to me right now. If you're a student, there are very, 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 very few people that can drop out of high school and be successful at what they do. So I do not advocate, and I, I think Daphne could say the same, Co-signed. to follow in the footsteps of Thelonious Monk because he is an exception, not a normal. So that's yeah. my soapbox aside. But he dropped out at 17 and uh, basically became a, a working man. Um, so he toured as an organist for an evangelist, which um, – have you ever seen an evangelist, Daphne? I mean, just on TV – yeah, the, unless you're in the church world, you really won't know what an evangelist is, or you'll only see them on TV. So today they're TV preachers and stuff. But an evangelist specifically is somebody who travels around uh, either an area or, you know, if they're really popular, the world, country, the world, like Billy Graham is an evangelist. Uh, I don't think that Thelonious Monk was probably praying for the likes of Billy Graham, but it's a popular thing in the church world. So it, basically, it's kind of like a, a touring gig. Uh, so at age 17, he hits the road with an evangelist and goes around and plays organ at revivals, which is a unique opportunity to be able to um, travel and play your instrument for different people. Uh, and that's – I think we've said this before about church musicians and church in general is – uh, these organizations provide a lot of opportunity for young and upcoming musicians to to hone their craft and to work on their craft. Now, obviously, the best of the best will be able to to make a lot of money in it or tour. But if you want to get into the world of music and you happen to be at a church, it's a great space to learn and to thrive uh, because – you know, you have a steady gig weekly, <laughs> uh, right. every Sunday. Uh, Ain't a so. bad gig if you can get it. <laughs> that's right. So that's what he did. And so then he goes to the 20s. And so let's, uh, let's talk about this a little bit. Yeah. So he becomes a house pianist in Manhattan at a Manhattan. My words are fun today. At a Manhattan nightclub called Mitten's Playhouse. I'm not familiar with Mitten's Playhouse. Were you? <laughs> no, I am not either, but that was a tongue twister as you read it. Yes. Ooh, yeah, everybody. <laughs> I'm just, uh, well, there'll be some good editing there, I'm sure. Um, but <laughs> here he kind of develops his chops. So just as a sidebar here, if when we're talking about developing chops in the musical world, it's kind of just like talking about um, getting your technical skill going or um, in the percussion world, sometimes we'll refer to it as just kind of the muscle building process to get your arms strengthened enough to do some of these things. So that's what we mean when we're talking about developing chops. 
So he develops his chops at these cutting contests, which is a like a musical battle um, between piano players. And I again, this is something I'm not particularly familiar with. Maybe it's because I'm not a uh, piano player. Um, but anyway, so it's like a. It's just basically like a musical battle. Is it kind of like dueling pianos? Like if you would go, is it you know, the modern so, day equivalent? So I looked it up and because uh, I I have known, I, what I originally thought was like in gospel music, drumming, like you get together on a weeknight and you like try to battle each other, you know, for lack of a better term, but it's a way to refine your skills. And so that's what I kind of thought it was. But I guess early in the 1920s, when work was kind of sparse for musicians, uh, cutting contest would basically be a battle to be the house pianist at a club. So, like, like you, you have a piano player come to, like, say, Mint, Minton's Playhouse and say, oh, whatever, I'm going to battle you, I guess. Uh, <laughs> epic battle. And they would... Do they throw pokeballs at each other? Please tell me <laughs> yeah, they do. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say yes. You know, I'm it. not a history teacher, so you can correct me, I suppose. Um <laughs> But they would battle, and if you got beat, you know, they would take your job. But as work became steadier, so like at this time period, the 40s or whatever, um, it would just be a way to like kind of have fun, but to refine your skills and just to test how good you were against other people, which in the music world has been going on all the way back since. I mean, we talked about it with uh, Bach, right? Is it Bach that we talked about the organ battles? Mm -hmm. You know, like... In music, we don't have a lot of competition. I mean, there is a lot of competition, but we don't have it in the way that like a football game where you can score so many more points than the other team, right? We have to battle with our uh, artistic skill. Um, mm -hmm. And, 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 so and our art is subjective, even in this realm. Yeah. So you, these battles can be kind of tricky then. Because again, yeah. in like football, you know, you can score, but that's, that's an objective number. You know, it's yeah. not that way in music battle. So, yeah, from the outside, if you're not in this situation, I'm sure it's it's a lot of fun, especially if there's two really, really good musicians just to kind of to play. And I, maybe the closest thing we have that in pop culture that you can see is like uh, the rap battle from 8 Mile, you know, like mm. just uh, who's going to be the top dog, basically. Uh, so, again, when it was or you go to a marching band, you have drum offs, you know, kind of like oh, that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so it's just, but at this time it was just um, contest to who knows what they're betting or maybe it was for his job. I don't know, but you had to be good and you had to practice. And it was really popular with um, stride musicians or stride pianists, which is uh, from ragtime where you jump really far with your left hand back and forth. So that's awesome. That's I, it's just uh, just the thought of like I'm just put your head in that space for a minute where you just see these like this kind of speakeasy setting and like people, yeah. I just think that's really cool. That just sounds really fun to me. Like I would love to be a fly on the wall at that point, just watching <laughs> right. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, all right. So he does these battles. He's, you know, Mittens Playhouse, whatever. He starts working under the blue note label and he makes five recordings while he's there, but he doesn't record under his own name until 47, which I thought was really interesting. And I, I'm sh maybe I just didn't dig deep enough, but I never really understood why he just never really um, worked under his own name for quite some time in his career. It was a short time, but there was a time where he just didn't even bother. 
And yeah. I think I wonder if there's a correlation here because he also gets married in 47. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know you. if there's a correlation there or what that is. But anyway, in 47, he also gets married to Nellie Smith and has two children during the course of their marriage. Yeah. So the record label, the blue label, some of that is um, if you're just like the house pianist, you know, you're a house musician or you're a musician. Like if you get recorded, you might not be um, – you might be featured or not featured but listed Uh you know, like as a backing musician, but I think he did because that's when he starts becoming a band leader and writing his own music, and actually being the headliner. And I think, if I remember reading correctly, he doesn't like some of his earliest recordings are featuring other like really good jazz musicians. You know, like mm-hmm. it's like Thelonious Monk featuring jazz greatists. You know, so he kind of brings people up um, or. And it's not good to say, but he rides the coattails of other success and fame uh, in a way because he's lifting them up. Because, again, he was not he was not appreciated in his time. Not so, at all. Yep. So he was able to get there, and this recording label kind of gave him an opportunity. But I guess when he was doing these these recordings and touring, he was so, like, underappreciated that he would play to, like, empty houses, you know? Like, he would just not get... It wouldn't be promoted well or people just didn't like him, so they wouldn't come hear him. And he signs later with Columbia later in his life, uh, which is one of the big four record companies. At least it was at that time. I don't know how popular they are now because who, you know, who buys CDs and stuff. Yeah. But uh, they had a lot more money and they were able to promote him more uh, to get him like better gigs and stuff. But Blue Note was kind of his original he had a falling out with them, I think, and they weren't paying him for stuff. That's how it all goes back in the... Yeah, and this happens a lot. We see with musicians, um, even today, um, you know, we see that there's always discrepancy over who owns the music or what the licensing titles are. A modern day equivalent um, might be the Taylor Swift situation, if, if anybody's familiar about that. She's going back and re-recording some of her old stuff because somebody else owns her originals. And so there's this constant, you know, artists are trying to, you know, get credit for their work or get better deals or get more money. I, I feel like that's a diff- a whole other subject we could tackle sometime about yeah. how these licensing things go. But he's just one of many who this happens to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people realize that when an artist records their music, they don't own their music anymore. It's the... The record label. There's a famous uh, on the Sticks Greatest Hit album. Uh, there's the first song is called "Lady" and in parentheses "95" because the original album Wooden Nichols, the original publishing company, wouldn't release the rights to to them because "Lady" was like their first hit, and so they re-recorded it and called it "Lady 95." <laughs> Isn't that uh, something? Yeah. Which just shows how much it happens. So maybe that's a conversation we should have sometime. Is is about like what it. all that looks like? I mean, we're no experts in that. But it, it's definitely fascinating because you're right. You do think that a song belongs to the artist, and that's no. actually not really the case a lot of the time. So we're probably not experts in anything. But no, we're definitely not. Except speculation, which I really like. Your speculation in '47 is when he gets married, and in '47 is when he starts recording <laughs> under his own name. And maybe, maybe I'm going to believe, and I'll believe this, and don't take this as fact. But you know, his wife probably is like, you need to get yourself out there. <laughs> I so, could see that possibly happening. Absolutely. I'm going to believe you know, it. I'm let's believe go that. with it. We're really great at speculation. All right. all right, everybody, make sure that you're writing in and telling us all the ways we're wrong. That's right. Don't forget to do that. 
that. It's very important because we do need to learn. <laughs> <laughs> so he retires in the 70s, or sorry, not in his 70s, but in the 70s, right? Right? Mm-hmm. In 1970. Yeah. yeah. And passes away in 1982, which would have put him, uh, how old would that have been? Like, I was told there'd be 70. no mass. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm going to do this real quick. Common Core in my head. Oh, no, uh, he didn't. He no, it's good. This is how you work. This is how my brain works. So, All right. You work your 19- brain. You let me know when that's done. He was born in 1917, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, do, 70. Do, 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 Shoot. Do. He was young. <laughs> <laughs> this Wait, we just did all that for you not to math. Sixty-five. There we go. <laughs> I'm sorry. So he was that sixty-five was years old. Yeah, there's a lot oh of pressure. God. Holy moly. Okay. Um, so in the seventies, you know, he or you know, he kind of semi-retires and then he passed away in eighty-two. Um, but after his death, he gets some honors, including in being inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. He's added to the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry, and and I think this is adorable. He's put on a postage stamp. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty intense to be able to get to your own postage stamp i think you know like yeah i agree i put a link to the his postage stamp in the uh show notes so folks go look at his postage stamp it's actually a pretty cool visual nice so uh high honors his last tour so his last tour was in 1971 and i put this quote in here because i think it's hilarious and i don't you know i don't know much about thelonious monk's disposition or anything but so this is this is what he says um bassist mckibben who had known monk for over 20 years and played on his final tour in 1971 later said that on that tour monk said about two words i mean literally maybe two words he didn't say good morning good night what time nothing why i don't know he said (laughs) he sent word back after the tour was over that the reason he couldn't communicate or play was that Art Blakey and I were so ugly. <laughs> that, I don't even know where to start with that comment. I don't either. Because but, the amount of guts you have to have to say something like that to another human being. <laughs> I, he didn't I, even I, say I it. He just sent it over after he was done. I mean, what a, what oh, a. Oh, man. That's that ooh, there's a couple things I want to say that I, I'm just going to back off on because that's just mm, that's yeah. a, that's an energy that is that is, that is, that an, is energy. an energy and I will oh that's that's just where I will leave it. So, given that he says things, I'm assuming there's some controversy with him sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So this goes back to this. nobody thought he was going to be good. Not nobody, especially early on. And early in his career, he was introduced to this lady named Lorraine Gordon, uh, who's like a huge advocate for him, would like go to record stores and stuff. And I have this quote uh, from, it says, in her autobiography, Gordon spoke of the utter lack of interest in Monk's recordings, which translated, of course, to poor sales. Quote, I went to Harlem and those record stores didn't want Monk or me. I'll never forget one particular owner. I could still see him and his store on 7th Avenue and 125th Street. He's, he can't play, lady. What are you doing up here? The guy has two left hands. You just wait, I'd say. This man's a genius. You don't know anything, end quote. So, I mean, even trying to go out and hit the streets and work for him did not work. 
that's just the fact that word of mouth wasn't even working, you know, I know. Like, and that's how you got things done at the time. I mean, it isn't like there was the internet or anything at the time to, to spread that music. You had to use that. And even then people were like, nah. Okay. So not all controversy with Thelonious Monk was, was just how unique his musicianship was. <laughs> I mean, he had real controversy as a, of course, as a uh, black man in the 19, you know, mid 1900s, uh, he had his fair share of run-ins with the law, but two really particularly stuck out. Uh, this first one in 1951, his friends, uh, he and his friend were pulled over by the police. They found uh, narcotics is what they said in, in there in Monk, knowing that the drugs were probably his friends. He didn't snitch. Um, so what happens or what happened to him was he lost his New York City cabaret card, which means he couldn't play in clubs that served liquor, which I didn't know this was a thing. And I, is this a st- is this still a thing, a cabaret card type I thing, you know? I don't know. I don't know if that's yeah. a thing anymore. Yeah, I don't know. But he, he got it taken away, which means he couldn't play it. He's clubs, these well-established clubs that you want to get into as a musician because in this world, you know, you sell alcohol, you make money, you make money, you can pay the musicians, the musicians get people to dance and enjoy their time and then get them to drink more alcohol, which makes more money. And it's like this cycle cycle of nightlife musicianship. And if you can't be a part of that, then what good are you? Well, so this (laughs) basically took away his livelihood, right? Didn't he have to go underground then? Yeah, so basically what happens is he is invited and starts to find the underbelly of kind of like some, well, I guess they don't have speakeasies so much at this time, but the underground world, like lesser known clubs or not so legal clubs. Um, And he did like short advertised one night stands at different clubs and stuff. So, man. That's a way to go. It's not like you're not having steady employment. So this, so basically, this one night took away steady employment for him. Yeah, yeah. And so that was in '51. And so he eventually gets it back, so he can play at these clubs. And then in 1958, he was detained again. Uh, and when they were asking questions, he didn't answer anything. He didn't really cooperate. He didn't answer questions. And the police uh, beat him and his friend, and then searched his car. And they found drugs in the car again, but. Uh, the judge basically threw out the case because uh, the cause to search the car or the permission to give consent to search the car was done under duress. So basically anything that happens after the beating doesn't really matter because the events would not have unfolded the way they unfolded if they had not been you know, physically coerced into into cooperating. And I know there could be people that hear this and say, well, he shouldn't have had drugs in his car. And that whole conversation of uh, jazz, the black community, and you know, the prevalence of drugs is probably not a conversation that relates to music very much. Uh, but just understand that, sure, maybe he shouldn't have had drugs, I guess, but it's not like that was an uncommon thing. Um, for a lot of different reasons. So the judge, I think, my personal opinion, uh, followed through correctly. It said you can't really just beat people into doing what you want them to do. And so right. that was, I think, the last no, known run-in with the law that he had. Yeah, but it's it's kind of, I think both of these are very, um, you know, kind of talk to the time. 
you know, and yes. talk to the culture, uh, especially at that moment. So I, you know, you know, he, he got, he got a little bit of a break, you know, in 1958, thankfully. Yeah. And so that he still had a bunch of time left on his career and that didn't deter him very much. So now we can talk about his style and his technique, which we've been kind of alluding to throughout this whole podcast. So Yes, definitely. Well, as we said at the beginning, he was kind of referred what was what was the actual term? The elephant on the keyboard. And this is yes. extremely obvious if you watch him play. Again, I direct everybody to the YouTube videos. He's got a very heavy hand. And what we mean by that is <laughs> like when you watch him play, his fingers are really flat. And in a general piano technique, your fingers should be curved and a little bit lighter. He basically is like, nah. And he makes them flat and he makes them pretty heavy. And when he plays into the piano, boy, he really plays into the piano. (laughs) It's just like he's got marching band drumsticks on the end of his hands. That's what it reminded me of. Um, His technique is not anything that a piano teacher would ever teach him real flat, (laughs) um, no legato, no smoothness to his fingers. They're just kind of ploppy. Um, they really just kind of land on top of a note instead of descend on a note. Um, and then he plays a note any way he can play it. So basically if it means that he's got to do a really big stretch between his ring finger and his pinky, fine. Um, whatever he's got to do to get to the no. So this, he has, uh, I like how you put this. Sometimes this will lead to embellishment of seconds. <laughs> so like yeah. if he's aiming for D, he's hitting E kind of, right? Yeah. And then you slide back down to the D and you got jazz, baby. You know? Well, that's all jazz is. It's just overshooting and undershooting. No, yeah. don't write us letters. I'm kidding about that. Kidding it's just about, about that. knowing if you when you play the wrong note, where to go after that. That's all it is. Right? That is actually more accurate. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it is embellishments. And this, any way you can play a note, like you said, like these weird stretches. But one of the critiques that somebody had was that he would um, – split melodies between hands and in the piano world really like right hand is melody left hand is accompaniment and let's say switch and never never will the two cross paths and uh so like (laughs) just if the note was close to a finger he would play it type of thing you know and so he just i don't know he just didn't do things Classically, I suppose no. is the right word. No, to he use. had his own way of doing things, but that's partly why he's so wonderful because he didn't <laughs> yeah. follow norms in that way. You know what I mean? I, I yeah. love, I love an artist who can still be an artist but not fit into those neat little boxes that we like yeah. to put musicians in sometimes. And, and we're all guilty of that to some degree. I mean, we're teachers, so we talk about this a lot. Well, they are a classical musician. They are, a, you know, <laughs> we put everybody in these great little boxes. And when we think of jazz, we're thinking about, you know, these, these trained musicians, but he's, he's just very different. And I just really appreciate that about him. Yeah. And we've been kind of harping on his style, but yeah. Uh, he still could play all the stuff. I mean, he could play his arpeggios. He could play his runs. He could his finger dexterity, individual finger dexterity, which in the piano is very important, uh, was very good. He could play melodies and trills in the same hand at the same time. And um, 
when you, as you were even talking about this and reading uh, about how heavy handed he was in an elephant on the piano, I was thinking like, if an elephant and a cheetah both run at 60 miles per hour, which I don't know how fast an elephant runs, but okay, say 30, <laughs> but they both run, one is going to look faster, but they're both moving at the exact same speed. And I think about, um, I had a friend in college, her boyfriend was getting recruited to play like college ball and uh, college basketball. And she's talked about like when they were on the court, he never wore black shoes because the black shoes made him look slower than like white shoes did. And uh, so when you watch like Thelonious Monk play and how much he can play these techniques and do what he needs to do to get the sound that he wants, which is probably the most important thing you can do in music is it doesn't matter how you play it as long as you get the sound that you want. Uh, It's easy to kind of like make fun of him, uh, but he was a skilled pianist. It's not like he was some slouch and we're we're like good. We're better than him because my college professor taught me how to curve my fingers and sit properly at the piano. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I will never be at the same level as Thelonious Monk. Well, and I feel like when you go down that road, you begin to gatekeep a little bit. And we definitely don't want that because nothing should be gatekept, but music especially shouldn't be gatekept. So yeah. Especially for the second most recorded uh, jazz artist in all time. Preach. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So some, some of his other techniques and skills is he used whole tone scale. So normal scale, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. So that do, re, mi, there's a half step in there. He didn't do that. He used uh, interesting whole tones, which is a newer music technique, which jazz in the context of all music ever existing is pretty new. Uh and then um, parallel sixths, which is, um, you know, uh, interval of a major sixth. And he would play solos like that. So you'd probably lock your fingers into like a sixth width and play that way. Uh, he used space and long notes in his solos, which in jazz, uh, sometimes you want to play really fast and play really high and like play all the notes as you possibly can in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also just, he used silence and length to make his solos interesting, which we often we have to harp on our students a lot that silence in music is still music. It's just a choice of the absence of sound instead of sound hitting you. And so well he recognized said. that and uses that as a technique. Yeah, that's really well said. The absence of sound is still effective. Yeah. Well said. And finally, he, uh, well, I guess two last thing, he would stand up. He was very famous for like standing up at the piano and kind of like dancing around. And he did this during um, solos of other people, which in bebop, especially with like smaller ensembles and jazz, you have like a bass player, a guitar player, maybe a uh, drum kit and the piano. And if the guitar player is playing a solo, so the guitar and piano can both play melody, but they're also both chordal instruments. So they provide the harmonic structure. They're playing like the G minor 9, 11, 13. You know what I mean? And <laughs> they're providing this these jazz chords. And the bass player is providing that root, you know, kind of like whatever that bass line is. And um, so when a person is soloing, the other accompaniment, the other chordal instrument will play the chord outline and allow the listener to kind of orient themselves, but not Thelonious Monk. No, he would stand up and dance and then sit back down. And uh, he was like really famous for like standing up at the piano and just spinning in a circle (laughs) then sitting back down. You know, like 
he was a performer, <laughs> to <laughs> say the least. Yeah, he kind of does it all. Yeah, he's he's an interesting dude. Fun to watch. Yeah. And I didn't know this. I think this is cool. He apparently really liked the key of B-flat. So some of his fav- his famous songs are written in B-flat. And I was reading somewhere somewhere like one of his most famous melodies revolved around like B-flat the note. So I just thought that was it. like people have their keys that they like to play in or their notes. Like I really like to play in the key of D. And uh, Is that just because like, of being a guitar player, do you think? Well, some of it, I think, but I've always liked D. So when I sit down at the piano, it's the first chord I'll play. Um, and I just don't know. It's just, it, that just feels like home for me. <laughs> so, uh, I, so if I wrote a bunch of music, it'd probably be in D. Some of it might be, you know, some of my earliest exposures to music was in the church, and a lot of hymns are written in the key of D. So maybe that's something to do with it. But, oh, um, so there's a slight emotional connection. Maybe. Or some kind know, of just, nostalgic connection. <laughs> there you go. I'm just spitballing here. But I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I think well, it's, uh, that's what we do here. Let's be real. That's right. <laughs> so his Thelonious Monk was the key of B flat. So there you go. I do Trivia like a B flat. I do like a B flat. Yeah. But now when doesn't? I'm playing four mallets, a B flat no. arpeggio lays terrible when you're playing four <laughs> mallets. Just picture it and you'll see what I'm saying. So, um, yeah, so let's talk about a couple of his famous works before we close out the podcast today. Um, Round Midnight, Blue Monk, was which was that named after him? I, I have to imagine I have so, to yeah. Think. Straight No Chaser, Ruby, My Dear, In Walked Bud, and Well, You Needn't. Um, those are all linked in the show notes. Um, and he added a bunch of songs to the Jazz Standards list. I should have said that, which is like the Jazz Standards list is – is pretty self-explanatory. It's just basic songs that jazz musicians will learn. And, and that way they can just sit in with any band and play them kind of like in the, with the fake books and stuff. Um, but yeah. jazz standards, he, what we're saying here is basically his contributions were big enough to be on this standards list. Yeah. I think like jazz is such a unique genre of music that it is, one that I can really think of that is kind of like they have a standards book or like just a list of songs that you should know as a musician that, like you said, can just sit down and let's play straight no chaser in the key of uh, A flat, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the singer, whoever's going to sing it needs to move it down. And so you can say that language and people will know. Let's play round midnight in the key of C. And then you just say, all right, cool. And it's that informality in the structure of formalness, formality, mm-hmm. that is just makes jazz so interesting. Well, I think it's very interesting because we joke about jazz being so improvised and stuff. But when yeah. you put it like how you said it, like if somebody says, we're going to play In Walked Bud in E major, well, you really got to yeah. know your way around your keys at that point, which yeah. is very – which is very um, – theory heavy, which means you have to know a lot about theory. And so, because you have to do a lot of musical calculation, you know, you might've learned Ruby, my dear and B flat, but if somebody says, well, now we're going to play Ruby, my dear and D you mentally have to do the math to figure out where all the chord changes are at that point and what all the pitches are at that point. So we talk a lot, you know, we tease a lot about, well, jazz, you just make it up and you, you can, but boy, do you have to know your theory? And that kind of goes more along the line with like, I don't know if formal study is the right way to say it, but um, you really got to have a brain to get around all these things. 
Yeah, and you can formally study it all you want, but in, it's as with all music, you have to play with other people Amen. to really solidify it. Amen. So. That could. I remember the first time yeah. I got uh, I got introduced to this. It was I was in high school. I was a, I played trumpet, and my private teacher was a trumpet teacher, jazz trumpeter, and uh, I really enjoyed playing jazz. But I was a classically trained musician playing jazz music, which uh, I had some of the informality of, like I didn't. I understood that jazz was more informal, but uh, I met with the bass player. We just like happened to sit down together, and he goes, "Hey, can you do you know this song in mm-hmm. A?" And he was my peer. He was like another high schooler, and I was like, "Man, you're speaking like a foreign language to me." And I felt like real dumb because I didn't know like standards, and I didn't know how to change it into a key. And I think you nailed it that like you have to know your theory, and you can study that. But until you sit down with somebody who says, hey, can you play Round Midnight in uh, B-flat major? You're like, no. <laughs> you know, we like, can't do that. <laughs> yeah. And so you just got to do it then. And then – so going all the way back to those cutting battles, those cutting – is that what it was called? The, um, yeah, you had to know your battles. stuff. Cut, cutting contests. Is no, cutting contests, yeah. We kept, we yeah. kept saying battles. <laughs> yeah. So going all the way back to that, the – it can be a very friendly way to have a jazz standard and have somebody added like Thelonious Monk, or it can be a way to separate good and bad, or at the very least, an entryway to the world. Um, so, and that, it just goes to show Thelonious Monk, you probably never heard of him. Maybe you have, but this list of jazz songs are all songs that I have played. You know, um, but he just kind of like this unsung, we're singing his praises, but Mm -hmm. this background famous person that's just kind of everywhere and in everything, but not like the star studded center. And I think that's what makes Thelonious Monk a cool musician to look at and a cool jazz composer and a cool just person to celebrate in this world. Couldn't agree more. And I'm not even going to try and repeat it because I think you said it so well. So we're just going to stop at that point because Jeremy had it right. So (laughs) as we close out, we do want to remind you, don't forget, you can listen and subscribe to this podcast wherever you'd like. Um, I don't, again, I don't know if we've said this lately, but we are big fans of Overcast app, the Overcast app. Um, We both privately, uh, that's where we listen to our podcasts. Um, You can find us on Twitter at OHVA Music. You can find Jeremy specifically at Jeremy P. England. And of course, you can find us at the website anchor.fm forward slash OHVA Music. So that'll wrap us up for today. We'll see you next time. Bye.